As we begin this morning, I'd like for you to imagine you're 17 years old. In fact, do we have any 17-year-olds in the room at this service? <laughs> Good try, Dan. <laughs> Several of you raise your hand, right? Any, any legitimate 17-year-olds in the room in this service? Okay, I didn't see any. Maybe I'm missing a hand. Okay, great. Got hold. She's a little nervous and shy. So imagine you're 17. You're one of the youngest of several brothers. And for various reasons, they just don't like you at all. One day your father asks you to run an errand to your brothers. They're on the job site. You say, sure. When you get there, they so despise you that they've actually agreed and plotted together to kill you. As you arrive, they, they tackle you and bind you and throw you in a hole in the ground. And they're thinking, how can we get rid of our brother? Well, in quote-unquote a merciful moment, one of your brothers says, you know, let's don't kill him. Let's traffic him. Let's profit from that. They agree to that. And so they concoct a story to tell old dad what happened to you tragically. And then they sell you to some folks traveling by. They're headed to a foreign country. It's neighboring, but it's still a foreign country. And for the next 13 years, your life is a tumultuous array of trials, including things like an accusation of rape and then time in prison. But believe it or not, at the end of these 13 years, in this very country in which you've been accused of rape, imprisonment, and, and that you weren't even aware you were headed, you end up as a high-ranking leader of this country. And your job, one of them, is to make sure that as uh, the famine in that area worsens, that, that you provide and save and, and, and feed the people. And so you do that. And so for the next eight or ten years, you're, you're doing a good job in your role. And one day, guess who shows up looking for food? Your brothers. Now, they don't know it's you. You've changed externally a little bit, not just age-wise, but you've married someone from that culture. Uh, you've kind of taken on some of the external appearances of, of that role. Nothing wrong with that. And so they don't really recognize you, but you recognize them. And this is overwhelming for you emotionally. But in time, perhaps a few weeks or a month or so, you, you reveal who you are to them. And it is a crazy moment. You're just weeping and they're weeping and, and they're weeping out of fear. <laughs> they're not just floored, they're afraid. What are you going to do to us? Well, what you actually do is you arrange for the family to be brought to where you are. You kind of negotiate some good deals. You give them some land. They live. They grow crop, crops. You take part of it to help with feeding other people. They get to keep part. And you've kind of arranged in these years now to be reunited with your family. It's amazing. So some more years pass, and your father dies. And now your brothers are really afraid because they're thinking, man, with dad out of the way, is he going to take final vengeance on us? Will this be the moment he gets us back? So they come to you and they say, listen, we know 25, 30 years ago what we did. Will you forgive us? What would you say at that moment 
when you're looking into the faces of your brothers, the very people who perpetrated upon you a single act of evil that changed the entire trajectory of your life. In that moment, how would you respond? Here's how Joseph responded. Because the story I just told you is actually Genesis 37, verse 1, through Genesis 50, verse 19. It's Joseph's story. And he's in that moment, facing his brothers. And how does he respond? Well, let's look at Genesis 50, 20. In this final but God message for the summer, And let's see how he responded. The Bible records for us, this is Joseph's response in that moment. As for you, you meant evil against me. Say the next two words with me, church. But God. We say it again with me. But God. What an irresistible interruption. Amen. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We should give a congregational wow at this moment. That this would be his response at that moment. There's only one reason that Joseph could respond in this way at that time. It's because he believed two fundamentally true and unshakable things about God. And they're revealed in this verse. Let's look at them today. The two unshakable, unchangeable things about God that this verse reveals to us. Now, I want to say to you that this verse, we could probably unpack it for multiple weeks. It is, in fact, in my opinion, I just said, in fact, in my opinion together. That's kind of odd, isn't it? It is, in my opinion, one of the most theologically rich and yet grammatically succinct verses in the entire Old Testament. I mean, think about it. It's just two phrases. But we get so much meat here. So with our knives and forks, we're going to just kind of pick this apart and dig at it and eat till our time is up. And I hope you leave even hungrier for more. Okay? This is a rich verse. There's two things it tells us about God. These are two things Joseph knew, which is why he responded the way he did in that moment. Here's the first thing he knew. He knew that God has authoritative power. God has authoritative power. It's clearly seen in this first phrase when he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The force of this phrase and this principle is found in the word meant. It's used once, excuse me, used twice here, just one word, but this really is the core of this first phrase. That there was something that was intentional, not accidental, and evil happening to Joseph. That's what the word meant there. He says, you, you brothers, you meant evil against me. You intentionally, purposefully uh, contrived evil against me. But then the same words used for God's actions. But God meant it for good. God intentionally, purposefully used. Now watch the next word. It's the two-letter word, it. God intentionally, purposefully used that very evil for good. You see, this is where we, we face the temptation that we sometimes want to lower God to where we can kind of get our hands around him. Put him into a framework we can understand. This is an, a, an aspect of God that I can't fully 
and even adequately explain. I don't have the human capacity to do it. I'm doing the best I can on this today. But we will be left with like, wow, that's an amazing God. Do not lower him or minimize him or smallize him, okay? Let him be bigger than you can comprehend in this angle. That God, in some way and somehow, when they were intentionally selling him, God was intentionally sending him. They say, Todd, why do you use those words? Because that's exactly how Joseph described it. Will you back up five chapters? Genesis 45. Genesis 45 records for us the actual first encounter Joseph had with those brothers when he was very emotional. Genesis 50 is probably a few years after Genesis 45. And in this first encounter in which he reveals himself to them, I would encourage you to take some time today, this week, read verses 1 through 8, and notice that three times Joseph says, God sent me. See that in verse 5? Look at verse 7. God sent me. And then verse 8, he actually uses the words, but God. And his point is that it was God who sent me. Three times Joseph asserts, you didn't sell me. God sent me. Wow. What a perspective. It's because Joseph knew he, that God held authoritative power over evil. That was actually intended and on purpose God actually was intending and purposeful in using it for his good. You see, Psalm 105, 16 and 17 says the same thing. This is a brief history of of Israel. And it says that in verses 16 and 17 that, that God sent a man. He's speaking of Joseph. And it even says in this verse that, that God called for the famine. So not only did God send Joseph. God called for the famine, which enabled the rest of his family to join him later. There's nothing in this story that's accidental. It's all intentional by God. Proving to us he has authoritative power. And see, sometimes we see these pictures and these verses and these stories, and we think this about God. I want you to follow me here. We, we, we picture God as this trailer of a God. That he comes behind us, and he's kind of picking up the pieces. Like he's fixing our blunders along the way. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the one who goes before us, accomplishing his will all along the way. God is as some trailer who kind of just says, oh, Vance, let me help you there a little bit, or I'll take care of that, or I'll fix this, or I'll, I'll compensate here. God doesn't come behind you. God goes before you. And he's establishing and ordaining your life You see it as a puzzle, but God's arranging every piece perfectly as he designs. Let me give you some proof of this. Psalm 139, 16. Look at this verse. I hope that it stops you in your tracks. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Ephesians 2, 10, speaking of the good works that God prepared for us to do, he says, He prepared those beforehand. Don't you love that? Even the good things you're going to do, God has already ordained and prepared those so that you would do them. That's God going before you. And who doesn't love Romans 8, 28? We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So church, the Bible lays out a picture of God going before his people, 
in full authority of everything that happens. And he's laying out the, the pieces of the puzzle you call your life. He's fully aware and arranging and ordaining and allowing and orchestrating. Now, this is not to minimize the power of evil in the moment. Nor is it to minimize or negate the pain of evil in the moment. Evil is exactly that. It's hurtful. It's painful. It's long. It's silencing. It's despairing. It's confusing. It's deafening. It's weakening. None of this says evil doesn't do that in the moment. This only says to us that evil doesn't have the last say-so. That even amidst evil's temporary power, there is a greater power, and it's God's. And God uses and works everything to His ultimate end. Even when in the moment we're only experiencing the the temporary or momentary pain of evil. You can be sure that God is actually meaning it for His glory and your good in the end. His eternal power is the greatest power on the earth. It's authoritative, it's full, it's final, it's sovereign. And Joseph here is asserting that and is living that out. Now we can find examples of this throughout Scripture. You could give examples of this from your life or from those you know. But I think the, the starkest example that should speak the loudest to us is exquisitely stated and summarized by Peter in Acts 2.23 because it concerns God himself and how he related to and ordained the death of his son. Look what Peter said about Jesus. He said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. See, there's no trailer there, is there? Even about his very own son, God's not picking up the pieces saying, well, the people didn't accept you. Rats, let's see if we can figure that out. Or, well, this ministry didn't go like I thought. I guess we'll have to put the kingdom on hold. That's not what's happening. God is in a definite, foreknowledging way, planning to send his son to be the sacrificial substitute for us. And yet it occurred through the hands of lawless men. They murdered and killed him. How does God do this? I don't know exactly, okay? I'm at a loss for words to explain this fully, but I can assure you the Bible teaches that God is not a trailing God. God is a going before God who arranges the pieces of the puzzle we call life in the way that is best for your good and His glory. And He is in ultimate control. He has final authority. And if He would do it even for His own Son, if he accomplished through the death of his son the, the foreknowledge and the, and the predetermining of that event, if he used that for the redemption of mankind, I can assure you he'll use everything in your life for his glory and your good. Nothing is outside of his authoritative power. Not one single thing. Now, you may be asking, well, Todd, what is this ultimate thing he's after. I mean, if he's that powerful and that authoritative and he's working things towards this end, what is that end? I'm really glad you asked that. Because the second half of the verse tells us the answer to that question. Let's look at it together. Joseph knew not only God's authoritative power, he also knew God's ultimate purpose. 
He says in the, in the verse, he says, God meant this for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I like the way the NIV translates this. They say that God has brought about the saving of many lives. And God's purpose, both then in the moment and eventually in the fulfillment, is the saving of many people. The saving of lives. Now, let me explain this answer from an immediate angle and an eventual angle. Okay, so I want you to really hang with me here. Uh, don't put it in neutral yet. What is God up to here in the immediate? He's continuing to keep his Abrahamic covenant. I believe Abraham was Joseph's great-grandfather. And he made a promise to Abraham that he would make of him a great nation. He would give him a land and he would send a savior through his line. But if you read through Genesis up through about 37 and 38 you would think, I don't think the lion's going to make it. <laughs> they seem to self-destruct, and Satan's coming after him hard. It's highly dysfunctional. And what I think God does, one of the things is, he removes Joseph from every bit of that and secures him in a foreign land to ensure that the line continues and that he's keeping his promise to Abraham to make a great nation, to give him a land, and to send a Messiah. So as you get to Joshua, you find that really happening. They do get the land. The, the nation is great. But the Messiah is still to come. So Joseph is really part of this lineage. And the line continues generation after generation. And eventually, Jesus Christ is born in this line, fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. The Messiah has come. The one from the seed of Abraham that would bless many nations. He arrives. He's born of a virgin. So you see what's happening here? God is in the immediate saving, yes, those initial people, part of Jacob's family and Joseph's family. He's saving them so the line continues. But when Christ comes and fulfills uh, in, in the substance what Joseph is in a shadow, he saves people spiritually. In Joseph's story, he's the physical agent of salvation in a physical sense. He's the literal one who kind of saved them, giving them food in a famine. When Christ comes, he's the ultimate Joseph, we say. He's the fulfillment of everything Joseph predicts, of the type. And he saves people spiritually. But in both cases, what's at stake? It's the saving of people. This is what God is always up to, saving people. This is his ultimate purpose, his ultimate end game. Now, I would maintain to you that I think Joseph knew this. And I think it's borne out by our text that when he describes God saving people, that this is why it came about this way. This is uh, what is happening today. Joseph was aware that God was up to something bigger than just food for hungry people. He was saving people. It's a very prophetic type of verse as well, pointing to Jesus. Now, I talk more about how Joseph knew this progressively and supernaturally on this week's episode of the Extra Point Podcast. So this is released on Tuesday. I'd encourage you. Make sure you uh, listen to that on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. Go by, check out the Extra Point podcast. I talk more about how did Joseph really know progressively and supernaturally that God was up to something bigger. My point here is since let me show you that I think this did occur. He's aware that God was actually saving people. And because he knew that, God's in-game purpose changed his in-game perspective. Just make a mental note of that. Because he was aware of what God was up to eventually, it helped him in the immediate. God's end game purpose 
changed his in-game perspective. And Joseph's not alone in this. The Apostle Paul experienced the exact same thing. Let's fast forward centuries. Paul is converted on the Damascus Road. It's a dramatic moment. And in the days following that conversion, God sends to the Apostle Paul, who's then known as Saul, a man by the name of Ananias. And here's what Ananias says to him. Imagine this being the first news you receive upon your conversion. He says, Saul, the Lord wants you to know that you're going to stand before authorities and kings and rulers. You're going to be responsible. You're going to be an agent to take the gospel to where it's never been before, to the Gentiles. And so this means that there is going to be a lot of suffering in your life. Welcome to the team. Can you imagine that being the first bit of news you get upon your conversion? And that is what Paul's life was. The epistles lay out for us an incredible amount of Paul's suffering for the sake of the gospel. This was was really what God had called him to. It wasn't an accident. God wasn't picking up the pieces. God was going before Paul and saying, Paul, this is what I've called you to for the sake of my name and those who have not heard. And this is why in Paul's letters he could consistently say, even when in prison, he would say, I'm thankful that the word of God is not bound. He said, it's going forward in ways I never imagined, even while I'm in prison. He encouraged the Philippians. He said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. He said, in whatever case and situation I'm in, I've learned to be content. He talked about nakedness or peril or sword being not a trial in a way that was bringing death. He said, man, these things bring life out of us. It's Christ's life. Do you see Paul's heartbeat? His entire end game perspective is changed by God's end game purpose. Man, is that not convicting to you? It is to me. It kind of rocks my world a little bit. Like, wow, this is what it means when you begin to see God's end game purpose. You begin to have an end game adjustment to your own attitude. And so we see that God used every single aspect of Joseph, and I would add Paul. Joseph's life for his mission. Now, if you miss this point, that there is a larger end game purpose in play, you will misread the Bible. So I want to pastorally warn you of three mistakes I don't want you to make. Don't isolate these kinds of texts from the larger narrative, which is God's narrative about how he is bringing a people to himself. It's not just about Joseph in that moment with a lack of food in the area and helping his brothers finally get some nourishment. It's about a bigger story. It's God's story. So don't isolate the text. Also, don't ignore the main character. The main character in the story is not Joseph. It's God. It's the one who sent Joseph. It's the one who's arranging everything, who's going ahead of us, who's saving people. And don't intend it just for your own current situation only. When we make those three mistakes, when we isolate a text from the larger narrative, when we ignore the main character, and when we intend it just for our situation, we'll misread the Bible and we'll frustrate ourselves. We'll think, man, why isn't God solving my problem like in this 30-minute spiritual sitcom? Come on, God. Shouldn't mine end the same way? Shouldn't this work? You're misreading the Bible. All of the Bible's what I call dateline stories. All of the Bible's substories, they point to the larger story. All of the characters are just, they're secondary characters because God is the main character. He's moving the story along to his uh, intended end. He is intentionally, purposefully going ahead of us 
and arranging and orchestrating. Yes, even things that other people meant for evil, God is so powerful, he means them for good, and he will do that so that his ultimate end is accomplished. So I would encourage you, as you read the Bible, read it correctly and see God going to intentionally great lengths to bring people to himself. See him using everything in, in the stories of the Bible for his story. And know this, he will use everything in your story for his story as well. And this leaves me with just one pastoral application to bring to you, maybe one moving forward exhortation. In a lot of these two things that Joseph knew about God, that he has authoritative power and he has an ultimate purpose, and then he responded that way in that moment, what does it leave us thinking and knowing? What's a moving forward application? Well, let us follow suit by seeing our story absorbed into God's story. See, this is really what Joseph was doing. He knew that his story was absorbed into a larger story. That's why he responded in that way. Now, notice what this application or this exhortation is not. This is not a permission-granting application. Hey, I'm not saying this to you, church. I'm not saying, will you let your story be absorbed, absorbed into God's story? I didn't say that, did I? I'm actually not saying, will you allow God to absorb your story? I'm not saying that either. I'm actually making a statement that you should see your story absorbed into God's story. Why? Because it actually is. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that for those who love God, everything works together. So let me be just candidly bold with you. If you love God, you can't mess up your life. It is working for his glory. It is being absorbed into his story. The question is, do you see it? And do you recognize it? And this is the reason many Christians and churches are immature, malnourished. Because they think they have to actually approve for God to do this. <laughs> see, their vision of God is small. It's weak. It's little. They don't get how God can mean to actually use evil by others intentionally. I don't either, but I don't negate the principle or disavow the truth. It is. And so I stand back in awe of a God so big and powerful and glorious that he can do this. And I say, I'm going to see this happening in my life. Though I don't quite get it, though it seems like a puzzle, I know God is doing it. So I'm exhorting you, I'm calling you to see what actually is for those who love God. He is absorbing your story into his story. He's using all of your sadness and every one of your successes for his end game. And that is the saving of people. Let me see if I can give you a better picture of this end game God is up to. It's Described by John in Revelation 5, we use these verses around here a lot, and we will keep using these verses around here a lot. But here's how John would describe 
God's end game. He says there will be a time when history culminates in the consummated kingdom of God. And he says at that point, Jesus Christ will be seen as the only one worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. This is verses 9 and 10. And he can do that because he's the one who was slain. And by his blood, watch this phrase, he ransomed people for God. That's another way to say he saved people unto himself. Yes, back in Joseph's day, back in Abraham's day, Isaiah's day, John the Baptist's day, Paul's day, your day. God is saving people unto himself. He's using both good and evil, success and sadness to do all of that. And so his son Jesus will be seen as the only one worthy because even in his death, ordained by God and carried out by lawless men, God used that as the redemptive tool for all those who would believe from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. This is what God is up to. A global family of believers. This is the story that is absorbing your story. This is the story that absorbed Joseph's story. This is why he could say to his brothers in that moment when he's looking in the faces of those who in a single act of intentional evil changed the course of his life, he would say, oh, you got it wrong, brothers. You didn't sell me. God sent me. And that's overwhelming to think of a God that powerful that could take such an evil, horrendous act between brothers and use that very truth to settle and calm and change a man's life. By God's grace, don't lower God. Don't minimize him. Or try to explain away things that just sometimes we just need to say, I don't know how God does it, but I'm sure glad he does. And see, he is absorbing all of your sadness and all of your success into his greater story. And this is it. The saving of people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. So in light of God's story... And my pastoral call to you to see your story absorbed into his, which it actually is happening. <laughs> Can I speak to a few pockets of people at First Family and help you maybe adjust or recalibrate your vision so that you see this more clearly? Maybe help you make some changes or, or adjustments so that this is happening in a way that's visible to you. Let me speak, first of all, to maybe our elementary kids in the room, any first through fifth graders. I'll just call them that. And There's some younger ones, perhaps, but let me just speak to that age group for a bit. Could you lend me your ears? I see you waving over here. These kids in this young age that sometimes, um, we think they don't listen real well sometimes. <laughs> the truth is they actually have the least amount of clutter when it comes to hearing God. In fact, I'm amazed how clearly God speaks to little children. Did you know that? Now, actually, that's not a true statement. God always speaks clearly. Amen? But would you agree with this, that sometimes as we get older, and 15, 20, 30, 50, man, God's voice has to come through a bunch of clutter. <laughs> and it seems that it's hard to hear, and it's hard to... But when you're little... 
and you're third grade, man, the voice of God just rings with clarity, doesn't it? Can I say to all of our little children in this room in that age, when God speaks in light of his story, will you just listen to God? Would you be like Samuel? And when he speaks, just say, Lord, I hear you, I'll, I'll obey. Would you, even at the age of, of eight or nine or 11 or seven, will you just say to God, whatever you say, I'm in. Don't ever underestimate the power of a submissive spirit at a very young age to God's voice. So kids, in every section here, this is beautiful. We just listen. And when you hear God talking about his story and what he wants to do with you in that story, just say, I'm in. Let me speak to the parents of those children. I want to ask you to point to that story. Now, I know you point to things. I'm asking you to point to the right things, the ultimate things. You see, I'm about to say some things that you're going to think that I'm against that. I'm not. But I'm helping you achieve maybe some better balance because we all point to some things. But we shouldn't be surprised if we end up with children who are grown, and if they're just idolatrous American citizens as opposed to faithful followers, what would we expect if all we put before them was, the, was a plate full of worldly goods year after year? I mean, you can point to dance class. You can point to soccer clubs and baseball teams. You can point to horseback riding and camping. I'm not against any of those things. Did you know that? I think you should play sports or do hobbies, dance. I'm for enjoying life to its fullest. God gave us all good things freely to enjoy. So hear my heart in this. But I'm not for those things at the exclusion of God's agenda. And I would encourage all the parents here, balance how you're pointing to what's really significant and matters. Man, put up pictures of the world in your home. Have globes and mats. Pray big prayers. Talk about how God could use your kids in all places of the earth. Talk about unsaved people and the need for them to be saved and God's mission to reach them. How's he using your family in that? Maybe they're on a team or in a class or a club. How are they witnessing to those? How are they being an example? You can use all of these ways as platforms for God's agenda. Lean every ladder in your family against that wall. So you're living life to the fullest. You're enjoying it. Amen. Be involved in your community. Play on teams. I'm not against that. But I am against that if it's to the exclusion of God's ultimate agenda. Because your kids right now on their ball teams, in their clubs, in their classes, they're around people who don't know the Lord. And the Bible says if they don't, know, they don't come to know Christ, they'll die and go to hell. Paint this picture for your kids. Pray big prayers with your kids. That God is saving a people from all over the world. How does he want to use you in that? Little Junior, little Johnny, little Julie, right? That takes parents pointing because of that story. Can I speak to teenagers in this room? Maybe young college singles. You've kind of come through some of those years, and your parents have kind of cut you free. You're kind of flying on your own. You're close to that, and that's God-ordained, and it's good. Can I encourage you to make your choices in these years based on God's story? Especially in two arenas, your spouse and your career. Because here's what I want to tell you that I've learned informally just from 30 plus years of pastoring. 
that two things will Velcro your feet to your current station in life quicker than anything. A spouse and a job. That's not bad, by the way, okay? Spouse and a job are awesome things, right? God ordained both of them. But you marry the wrong person who's not got a heart like God's. You take a job in an area where suddenly it's really um, not the kind of job where you're going to flourish and, and towards God's agenda, you'll find it more like a ball and chain. You can't relate uh, in regards to values you have with your spouse. You find it hard to, to give to causes and to things that matter eternally. You can't even hardly attend a church. You find it difficult to raise children. You have, you have fundamental differences. We told our kids uh, since about the time they could even hear that the most important physical decision they will ever make is the choice of a spouse. And so I want to lean upon our high schoolers and our young single adults. Choose wisely in those two arenas and let this be the filter for both of those. Let me lean on you with... uh, uh, the, the families here who are pre-kid or post-kid. In other words, you may be so young you don't have kids yet, but you may be kind of where Julie and I are kind of, you know, emptying your nest. We're not totally finished yet, but we're nearing that. And by the way, these are better days. And so uh, you, you may be nearing that. Here's something you don't want to admit, but it's true. Whether you, you're on the pre-kid or post-kid, you, you have a little more discretionary time and money. You see, when you have kids, you don't have anything. They're draining you of all of it, right? But on either end of that, a lot of times you have a little more. Maybe not much, but you have a little more time and money. Can I ask you a question? Are you investing that in light of God's story? Some of you can increase your giving to and through your church, knowing that your church is 100% committed to global missions in a variety of ways, for sure. Sending our own, helping and creating strategic partnerships, some of you could actually, with your spouse, visit our partners. You could visit other places. You could use your home as a hospitality station. I know some couples do that. And some people are doing this. I just want to lean on you. If you're in pre-kid or post-kid times, you probably have more time and money than you realize. And is it being invested in light of God's story? How about our business owners in the room? Are you leveraging every opportunity, not just for the product need that you sell or develop or make, but are you developing relationships and are you leveraging resources and profits for the deepest need of your customers and your employees? Are you thinking about how you can pastor and shepherd them towards the this end? How about our retirees in the room? Talk about discretionary time, right? (laughs) Can Can I just... Uh, speak to you plainly. Don't settle for the beach or the mountains. Don't become a recluse that actually what you do is you just let selfishness take a greater grab of your life. Invest your time in, in a way that, man, really is about his story. Here's one of the ways that I'm praying I can do this as I approach retirement in the next how many years? I don't know when it will be. I don't think I'm close, but I am 56. You never know. You're, you're thinking about these days. I want to invest those years in, in younger men who are 
working in, as pastors in churches. I, I want to be the kind of retired pastor that believes in the younger pastor. I don't want to be the guy that complains about the present because it's not like the past. Man, who can stand those kind of people, right? Can I just be that frank with you? They're just whining about the present because it's not like the way they used to do it. And I think I'll struggle with this. Can I be frank with you? I think everyone struggles with that. We think the way we did it probably worked pretty good, so we tend to favor that a lot. But times change, seasons change, and as long as we're not violating the mandate, man, let's let methods change. And what I want to be is the kind of guy in my retirement that just kind of breathe on the flame in a young pastor's life and say, you know what? I may not do it that way, but I'm not in charge. I'm not the one working there. So, hey, let me help you accomplish it the way God wants you to and just breathe on them and encourage them and support them. Man, I don't want to be a, a, a piece of baggage to a young pastor. And I want to be the kind of guy that blows on the flame of that potential. And that could happen in our church. That could happen in all kinds of churches where older people, man, pick out a younger person. And in light of God's story, they blow on the flame of their life and they help them just think about God's story. How are you living your life to that end? It may look different than how you lived your life, but deal with it. It's okay. It's not your life. It's theirs. And as long as you're following God's mandates and obedient to his commands, man, let's get behind the younger generation. Let's prompt them and encourage them and mentor them. You see, in every pocket of people in our church, there are are ways that we can see our story absorbed by his story. The story that the God who has authoritative power uses every bit of the puzzle we call our life towards his ultimate purpose, and that is the saving of people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. That's what we're to be about. Is your story about that story? And do you see it? For that's the story that matters. It's the story that says this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would never perish but have eternal life. That's the story that matters. That's the story that's absorbing every bit of your sadness and every bit of your success. I pray that we will be about that story. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.